Good morning. It's a pleasure to stand in front of you today. I have to tell you that um, usually preaching uh, is, of course, a, an, an opportunity for me to experience sort of no uh, small amount of anxiety. But this morning, I'm feeling an incredible sense of relief now because just last night, my seven-year-old daughter and I, on our maiden voyage through Harry Potter, book three, right in the middle, got to the scene where Hermione and Ron are no longer speaking because Crookshanks has apparently eaten Scabbers, the rat. So with that sort of vision of reconciliation, spoiler, from book seven in mind, whatever happens today doesn't matter any longer. It's good to be with you. Last week, as Caleb uh, mentioned, if you were here, we heard a text in which a teacher of the law comes to Jesus And says, which is the greatest of God's commands? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment, the greatest, is to love the Lord your God with your whole self, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second most important commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a rich text. We were reminded last week that this means that in some way, God's commands have a certain hierarchy. And these love commands, Jesus himself names them at the top of the list. We were reminded, and again this morning, that our full humanity is somehow bound up in those two words from Jesus, love God and love your neighbor. And we were reminded last week and again this morning of this deep and integral relationship between the two, that you don't peel apart, at least in Jesus' account of God, people, and the world, you don't peel apart loving God and loving people. This morning, we're going to sort of telescope in to that second commandment that Jesus names, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to do it with what is probably one of the most well-known passages of the New Testament, the story of the good or the merciful Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. It's a remarkable story in all kinds of ways, but if you're anything like me, familiar stories often incline us to not hear very well. Stories that we know over and over again can sort of switch us off. So as I read the text this morning, I just invite you to sort of resist the danger of a familiar story and listen with your whole self to Luke reflecting on these words from Jesus. Before we read, let's ask the Spirit to help us do just that. Spirit of God, Apart from you, we do not have ears to hear or eyes to see or lives to follow. We welcome you into our presence this morning and ask for your help in hearing these words from Jesus and doing them. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So listen to uh, this text from Luke chapter 10. So just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, having poured wine and oil on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend." Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we heard Jesus say that the two greatest commands of God are to love God and love neighbor. And this week we hear it again, God and neighbor love. And if these are the two greatest commands that God gives, then this question, who is my neighbor, must certainly be one of the most significant questions of truly human life. I think that's a fair sort of logical statement, that if Jesus says, The two greatest things that humans can do is love God and love their neighbor. Then this question, who is my neighbor, has got to be one of the most significant questions of fully human life. Second only to the question, who is God, I think. And so the text that we look into today has this rich way in which Jesus receives that question. He receives it. And begins to shape it in a way that calls us to a life that mirrors God's own life. And I'm looking forward to walking through this text with you this morning. It might be a good day just to keep the text in front of you. I'm going to offer up a ground rule. Here's a ground rule to you for this text. Let me just suggest to you that we resist the temptation at the very beginning of this story to write off the lawyer and the priest and the Levite. If you're like me, it's a little easy to write them off out of this story, to see them as self-interested, as self-righteous, as too easy of a foil for the text. But to write them off too quickly might actually write ourselves out of the story just a little bit more quickly than we ought. So more on the priest and the Levite in just a second. But let me just suggest to you that the lawyer, what if the lawyer in this story who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And can answer the question rightly when Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? And he says, well, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, yes, that's right, do it and you'll live. And the lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? Suppose with me just for a moment that the lawyer meant that, that the lawyer's question was not a question of closing things down, but rather he truly wanted, as the text said, to righteous himself. And so maybe it's a question that says, Jesus, to whom am I obligated lest I not be doing what I ought to be doing? So there's nothing in the text that makes the lawyer smug and self-righteous. 
And so he asks this question that maybe opens up the story, trying to expand the circle of his exemplary neighbor love. Just suppose that with me for a minute. And then consider how Jesus answers the question. It is quite fitting that Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, with a story. Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, not with an ideal, not with a set of categories, not with an abstraction. The only way Jesus can answer the the question, who is my neighbor, is in an embodied telling of human interaction. There's something important about that in this story. Jesus could have, I suppose, given some sort of taxonomy. In fact, the Jewish tradition had lots of those as it had developed over the years. Circles of obligation, cleanness or uncleanness. Jesus could have leaned into that, but he pushes a different direction. He can only answer this question, who is my neighbor, with a story. And the way he goes at it resists, actually. Jesus receives but resists the question. He resists the question. Who is my neighbor, the lawyer asks. It's a question that actually strains for a category, even if the lawyer is thinking big. Even if he's thinking there might be some kinds of people I've neglected. Who is my neighbor strains for a category, a hierarchy. Who are the people out there, what kind of people out there am I obligated towards? But Jesus in this story is so tricky. He's elusive. Listen to how the story starts. The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, if we were reading the Greek, it would be clearer yet, says this. A certain human being was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You catch it already. Give me the category. Well, some guy. Some guy was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, what kind of guy? Well, who cares what kind of guy? And more than that, Jesus keeps going. He fell into the hands of robbers, and they beat him, and they stripped him, and they went away leaving him half dead. It's sort of an often overlooked PG-13 layer of the story, but the fact that that man was stripped and lying on the side of the road naked in Jesus' world was a significant way to find out his identity. Was he Jewish or not? Circumcised. Was he Samaritan or not? Circumcised. But Jesus, with a bit of a glint in his eye, says, look, everybody in the story knows the identity of that beaten man But it's not actually very relevant to the way Jesus tells the story. Who is my neighbor? Well, some guy went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers and was stripped and beaten and left half dead. The characters in the story know something of the identity, this unfortunate character. But it doesn't matter to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? We get in the flow of Jesus' story this priest and Levite who show up. And it's easy to take shots at the priest and the Levite too. And they deserve some of that. They deserve some of that. But did you know that in the law of Moses, there are strong prohibitions against priests and Levites touching dead bodies? There, is, there are laws that say if you're a priest or a Levite, the only corpse you can come near is the corpse of someone related to you. 
And to actually touch a dead body is to become so unclean that you have a seven-day purification ceremony back in Jerusalem. Maybe the priest and the Levite were actually also trying to follow the commands of God in a certain way. I mean, we don't need to make too much of that other than to say, in a question about the greatest commandments that God gives, there is a hierarchy in this story. That maybe they're doing what Moses taught. But maybe they're paying attention to the wrong thing, this priest and the Levite. And so the text, like a refrain, says, seeing him, seeing this man, they moved to the other side of the street. Seeing him, they moved to the other side of the street. Who's my neighbor? So the story's got an unlikely hero. I mean, you probably know something about Samaritans and Jews in the first century. Israelites and Samaritans, ancient ethnic enemies. Samaritans thought that they themselves were the true descendants of Jacob, the true sons and daughters of Israel. They laid claim to that. Israelites accused Samaritans of not knowing the law, of not having a pure ethnic lineage, if you forgive the use of an ugly phrase, but a phrase that shows up in first century texts about Samaritans, they were called half-breeds, unclean, not worthy of God's love. And so there is this history of simmering tension between Jews and Samaritans into which Jesus tells the story. And in fact, just one chapter earlier in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are going through a Samaritan village and they won't, no Samaritan will let them stay there for the night. And so Jesus' disciples, James and John, in this Samaritan village quite helpfully say, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this village? And Jesus rebukes them. He says, that's enough. (laughs) He says, that's enough. That's the setting in which this Samaritan shows up on the scene in Jesus' story. And then we just need to let the story begin to do its work on us. The text is short, but dense. The Samaritan sees. The same word as the priest and Levite. He sees. But the Samaritan is moved with pity. The Greek word is rich. It's this, in his guts, he felt moved upon seeing this beaten man. And so he does the opposite thing of the priest and Levite. He sees him and he goes towards him. He goes towards him. And he bandages his wounds. And he hoists this half-dead body onto his own donkey. Just consider for a moment in Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor, the vision that's associated with neighbor love. He saw him. Consider for a moment the inconvenience of neighbor love. We don't know what the Samaritan was doing, but I guarantee you he was not planning to take a day or so to deal with this half-dead stranger. Consider the inconvenience of neighbor love in this story. Or maybe more difficult yet, consider actually in this telling I'm looking for the right word here, the fleshiness of neighbor love. It's a gross story. A beaten man, half dead, this stranger tending to his body, 
hoisting an unconscious body, apparently, onto his donkey. Consider the fleshiness of neighbor love. Just like Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor with an abstraction, he takes us into a story where neighbor love is nothing abstract. It's dirty, actually. It's painful. I have one time in my life carried an unconscious adult friend of mine who was struggling with addiction. And when I read this story, I can feel the difficulty of carrying a body like that. But in this story, neighbor love is just that embodied. And so the Samaritan takes this half-dead stranger to an inn. And you have to understand that inns in the, this is not the holiday inn. In an ancient culture marked by kinship, the only reason you stayed in an inn is because you didn't have anyone who would receive you. No family, no family friends. And so inns were known for prostitution, for banditry. is not a pleasant place. You couldn't earn reward points. And innkeepers themselves were stock characters in the ancient world for opportunists. People who took advantage of those who had nobody else to care for them. That's what an innkeeper did. And this Samaritan, the way Jesus tells a story, goes to this inn and he takes out two days' wages and gives them to this opportunist, innkeeper, and then says, and a blank check. Whatever else you spend on him, when I come back, I'll repay it. Consider the radical generosity of neighbor love in Jesus' story. This Samaritan has vision, he sees He's inconvenienced. He loves this neighbor with his body in an awkward sort of way. And he's got a radical generosity about him. Jesus can only answer this question, this deeply human question, who is my neighbor with this story? But when Jesus completes the story, I've told you he resists the question. And at the end of his story, he completes the resistance to the question. You see, the lawyer had asked Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? And whether out of expansive motives or narrow motives, that question asks for things like categories or limits or social hierarchies. Jesus, just help me know who my neighbor is, and I will then love them. But in Jesus' hands, that question is insufficient, even if it's a virtuous question, even if the lawyer means it out of the depth of his own faithfulness to God, Jesus resists. And in a subtle But important move at the end of the story, Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor, with a different question. Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who had fallen into the hands of robbers? Think about the difference between those two questions. Who is my neighbor? To to whom am I obligated Who are the people who fit the category that calls me to obligate myself to them? Which one was a neighbor? There's a different question about our lives. If we find ourselves thinking, who are the neighbors to whom I am obligated? Versus if we find ourselves asking ourselves the question, how do I become the neighbor to all? 
For me, the shift that works in my mind is to say, what the story is about is about neighborly love. Not about the category of people to whom I'm obligated, but Jesus resists that and instead calls for a disposition, a virtue, something that says the right answer to the story is the answer to a different question. How can you become a neighbor? Because if you can become a neighbor, then all people fit into the sphere of your concern. In a world like Jesus's, where there was all sorts of concern for identity and labels and which group you belong to, that's a profound and powerful shift. But in a world like ours, where there's all kinds of emphasis on identity and categories and which group we belong to, that question, what does it look like for you to become neighbor, is a profound shift. Not who are the neighbors I should love, How do I become a neighbor to all people? How do I practice neighborly love that isn't an abstract ideal, that isn't a wish, that isn't a sentiment on social media? How do I have the vision? How do I bear the inconvenience, the embodiment, the radical generosity that is neighborliness? This vision of love is the reason, I think, that Jesus can invite us also into love of enemies. Because in the same way that Jesus' resistance of the category neighbor unfolds in something different, be neighborly, so also it reminds us that the love we are called to offer has nothing to do with the loveliness of the people around us. It doesn't have to do with whether or not they are neighbor. It has to do with whether or not we will love. This is the way God's life works. We see it actually at the very end of the story. The lawyer is actually a pretty sharp figure. You know, Jesus, he gets every question right, except for the question he asks, I think. Jesus asks them at the end of it all, and which one of these three was a neighbor? And the lawyer says, well, the one who showed him mercy. And he picks up this word that in Luke, but throughout the scriptures, is an intensely God word. Mercy is a near synonym for love, but it's a love embodied. Love often can remain at the level of sentiment when we think about it. But God acts because God is merciful. That's the definition of mercy. God does not offer mercy because we are worthy. In the same way, God does not love because we are lovely. God's love comes from the depth of God's being. We're invited into that way of life. We're invited into a way of life that recognizes that we are most fully alive when we step into God's ordering of the world in a way that shares in God's way of loving. And our love is not about a category to, who, to which we're obligated, but it's actually about the Spirit's work of bringing up inside of us the capacity to become neighbors to all. It's a subtle but important shift. It's a subtle but important shift because I think the gospel of Jesus Christ alone can resource us to love even our enemies even those who seek are ill. Jesus answers 
the question, who is my neighbor, by saying, what does it mean for you to become a neighbor? Go and do that mercy, he says. Here's an important epilogue, which also means I'm almost done. From the earliest days of the church's reading of the Gospels, this story was picked up in a very particular way. I want to say back in a day when people had an imagination greater than ours and would read texts to say, it's not just about what these texts say, but how they're saying. And that opened up a whole field of allegorical wondering. How do these texts say more than even the authors thought they were saying? And in those days that lasted up until, oh, at least the 1500s, almost everyone who read this text made this equation. The Samaritan is Jesus. It seems pretty obvious in some ways, although they use this really clever play on words. The Hebrew word for Samaritan, shamar, means keeper. Jesus, our keeper. Of course, the Samaritan is Jesus, because who else sees us helpless? Who else comes towards us, binding our wounds, lifting us to himself, spending himself on our full healing? In the early days of the church, they couldn't read this story without saying, it is Jesus who neighbors us. Hear an echo from John chapter 1, where John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Some have translated the text. Jesus is the one who neighbors us and invites us to join him in neighboring all human beings, every human being. Jesus invites us to become neighbors to every human being. As Caleb reminded us on the way to the table, this is not something that we do on our own. It is God's way of drawing us into God's life and empowering us, not just as rogue individual neighbors, but as a community of neighborliness to become in the world a sign of God's great mercy towards all people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks that your overflowing love for us comes from the core of your being not from our loveliness. When you invite us into a life that looks like your life, of love freely given, overflowing, by your spirit, give us eyes to see and conviction to respond to all those around us that we might be neighborly lovers who reveal to the world your mercy. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.